Welcome to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change, where we bring you stories of real people working to address real issues. I am your host, Shimon Cohen. In this episode, I talk with Renita Waters, who is the Program Operations Administrator at the Center for Family and Child Enrichment in Miami, Florida. Renita is also the South Florida Area Coordinator for Florida State University College of Social Work and an adjunct professor at Florida Memorial University. We discuss the child welfare system, foster care, family preservation, and various interventions that take place for children and families in this complex system. Renita takes us through an example of what happens when child abuse is reported. She also talks about the challenges of this work for her and how she has learned to self-check and regulate her emotions and thoughts in order to focus on the needs of the children and families. Renita shares her story of how she got into this work and the impact of her life experience on her work. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hey, Renita, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Really uh, excited to have this conversation with you. And I guess just to get things started, maybe you could tell the listeners what you currently do. Okay. Well, currently I have three different social work careers going right now. Um, My full time, I'm an administrator with a subcontracted private child welfare organization. Uh, And in that role, I supervise dependency case manager supervisors who also supervise dependency case managers. Um, I also supervise a behavioral health liaison who's responsible for linking clients to services. And then I also provide supervision for BSW um, and generalist MSW students from the local universities. Um, In addition to the administrator role, um, I also function as a coordinator for a state university to place their um, social work interns and internships. Um, and then one night a week, I also teach a child warfare class at a local university. You got a lot going on. Yeah, but I enjoy it. <laughs> That's great. And thanks again for making the time to be on here. You know, when you talk about dependency, you know, I know that term is very common within your work day-to-day work, but for some of the listeners, they might not be familiar with what that means. And I was kind of hoping that you could kind of walk us through a case from when maybe an abuse call, like a hotline call goes in, just kind of briefly walk us through what happens even before they get to you and then what your approach is, what you would do. And I know every case is going to be a little bit different. Right. So um, you're right. Every case is different. But for the general overview, um, each case starts with someone that has a concern with a child's safety, whether it be a concern for abuse, abandonment or neglect. Um, And they call for the state of Florida. They call the abuse hotline, which is 1-800-96-ABUSE. A hotline counselor takes that call and they get the allegations and contact information from the caller. And that hotline counselor really is our gatekeeper for that case. They determine during that call if they will screen in that case. Screening in means that they will accept it for further investigation. If they screen it out, it doesn't get further um, investigations. And that could be for various reasons. They didn't have enough contact information. It didn't fall statutorily under the requirements for abuse, abandonment, or neglect for a child by their caregiver. Once the case is screened in and accepted, it is referred to a child protective investigator unit. Um, when that unit receives that case, they go out and they make the contact with the family and the child who's been identified as the victim. 
and they do the investigation to determine if the allegations are factual um, and what needs to be done intervention-wise based on the allegations or whatever else they find when they go out to the home doing that investigation. Once they determine that further services are needed, that case is then referred to our lead agency um, in Dade County, and the lead agency then assigns it to one of the subcontracted agencies in the county. And that's when my agency or one of the other three agencies in the county um, are contacted via intake to be assigned to that case for case management services, whether it's in-home without court, which are in-home non-judicial cases, or if it's going to be in-home with court intervention, or it can also be out of home with court intervention. What would you say is the number one goal of the child welfare system from your perspective? Um, the number one goal is to ensure that each child is safe within a family. That That's the number one goal is to ensure their safety in a family unit. And what are the unique challenges facing the population or the community that you're working with? Um, we have a couple of challenges because we are working with children and families and humans, and it's a very sensitive and serious population and consequences from um, what brings these families to our attention and also what decisions or services or interventions we provide. Um, one of our biggest struggles and challenges right now, um, I believe, is just our growing challenge to have appropriate foster home placements for kids who need out-of-home care. Um, we just don't have enough homes for the amount of children and the needs of the children that we're receiving that need out-of-home care. So where do those children go that can't get into a foster home because there aren't enough available? Because we are trying to move away from group or residential care, they're temporarily placed into a residential type setting, whether it's a group home or a shelter, until appropriate match in a foster home could be made. Um, sometimes what that means is that foster parents who signed up and they know that they can provide excellent care for three children are asked to stretch themselves a little more and try to provide care for four or five children in their home. And how does that tend to work out? Um, I, I believe for the foster families, it becomes overwhelming. Foster families get involved because they have a great heart and they want to help children and families that are in need. So I know it's very hard for a foster parent to say no when it's midnight or two in the morning and someone's calling them for a three-year-old and a four-year-old sibling saying, if you don't take them, then they'll have to be separated. Mm. Um, so I, I know it can get very overwhelming because the next day you have to wake up and you wake up to five kids when you went to sleep to three and, you know, resources are thin in that foster home. Something as simple as the space in the car. Um, yesterday I had enough space for three children. I don't have enough space for five to ensure right. that they're all getting to medicals and dentals. So it does become understandably overwhelming for those foster families. You mentioned that there's a push to move away from group homes and residential care. And I kind of wanted to come back to that. Could you talk about why things are, why that's happening right now? I believe large um, part is it, it goes into the goal for child welfare and dependency, which is children being safe in a family. The residential setting is really staff that are on shift. And while um, I've seen children in these settings that love the staff that they are with, every child is best served in a family setting. To know consistently this is the person or the people that are responsible for their care and that they were referred to. Um, so the state is really trying to give children those connections. Um, it also works better for families who are 
working to get their kids back in their home, that if their children are put in a family-like setting, they have a family they can work with and co-parent with to get their child back home sooner. So that family setting for that child works not only for the child living there, but also for those parents that are working to get their children back in the home. What's the biggest challenge for you in this work in terms of real social change? The changes are slow. The laws, the policies, they're they're slower responding to what research has put out. Unfortunately, in child warfare, we have this common saying where there's this pendulum that when something goes bad, we go very extreme in response. And then when it doesn't happen for a while, it kind of just fades away. And it's unfortunate that it takes a tragic situation um, that's in the media for quick changes um, that are extreme. But when we're looking at the numbers, the stats, the outcomes, we see a lot of things that work well for a family that we don't replicate. Um, It takes a while before we actually get into a policy or procedure to replicate what has worked for families. So I think that's been the biggest as far as social change, that it's very slow in child warfare unless it's tragic and extreme. What's the biggest challenge of this work for you personally? Not being upset. Uh, with others making harmful decisions or others not respond or not others, but myself not responding in sympathy. It's two extreme things. One is not getting upset with others making decisions that are not the best for them. And then the other one is not feeling sorry and not having this sympathy and constant sadness about the situations that these children and their families are exposed to. So finding a balance between those two. And how do you, how do you uh, kind of address that with yourself? I'm very, at this point, at this point, it took a while. At this point, I am aware of my need to self-check. So I will, um, when I am interacting with a family or before I'm interacting with a family and I'm reading on them or staffing uh, with my staff about a family, I will pause myself and say, where am I right now? Where am I leaning towards? Because I know I'm leaning towards one or the other. Am I getting upset or am I getting very sad in this situation? So I stop and I consistently check myself on both ends and see where I am and regulate myself from there. So you said that now that's easier for you to self-check, which makes me think that at some point it wasn't so easy. Not at all. Yeah. How did you, (laughs) how did that develop for you? It took time and experience, some bad experiences, some positive experience, and education also. When I first got in this field, I was a BSW graduate. I graduated in December, and I started case management in January with my BSW, and I went back for my master's while I was working in child welfare. Um, So a lot of the coursework, I was able to really sit and explore where I wanted to be as a social work professional and what I needed to work towards in order to get there. and then. Trial and error, I'm going to be honest. I used to look back at some interactions and go, you know, that really could could have went better had I regulated myself first. And I repeatedly, and I always tell myself that as much emotion as I may feel when I'm working in this field, at the end of the day, it is very personal for that family or that child that I'm talking to. And Mm -hmm. I can't make it more personal for me than it is for them because the recommendations and the interactions that they have with me can change their life positive or negative. So I'm very mindful of checking myself and appreciating that this is personal for this family and this child. And I have to respect that. So it's a time, (laughs) time. Right. And you probably bring that into your supervision with staff and with students because maybe they're working through that same issue. 
Yes, yes. Um, I think it's a common thing. And it's very important for staff um, and even my students that are supervised to know that it's normal and okay and that they have a plan ahead of time for that. So we make an active discussion about what happens because this will happen and that's okay. So what's our plan when it does come up? And when it does come up to see the light in their eye, like, haha, that's what you were talking about and, and them being ready for it. Um, so I consistently have that conversation with new staff, with students when they come in, just what is that plan when you feel yourself taking this far more personal than the family needs you to? You know, we were talking about what children and families go through. So I wanted to follow up with you and kind of get into a little more specifically about, you know, you had said that this is really personal to them. So one of the ways you self-check is to make sure that you're not, it's not becoming more personal for you than it is for this family. And that got me thinking about that we hadn't really gotten into what the children and the families you're working with and your case managers, case workers, you know, the people they're working with directly, like what these people are going through. So I was hoping you could speak to that. Okay. Um, Well, there's two different experiences, obviously, between the clients, which are the children and the families and the staff, the frontline staff, case management. For case management, I I think I can speak more on their um, behalf because I've been in that frontline position. That's why I started. And it's very hard because this work is so serious and it involves others' lives to make sure that they have a good balance between work and family. Child welfare, especially frontline case management staff, they are on call 24-7. So when an emergency comes up for a client, they have to stop their personal to respond, not necessarily always in person, but just to make sure that someone else has the information so they can respond to that emergency. So I have staff that come to me and they struggle with just scheduling their personal lives and the professional. Um, We have kids that change schools and while we're waiting for their bus transportation to kick in, the agency is responsible for transporting them to and from school. And sometimes that school can be from Homestead to 8th Street every day to and from. And staff that have children, they have their own children, they have to get up in the morning and take to school and then try to work out amongst our team how this child will still make it to school and our staff not have to neglect their families. So I think that's a constant struggle for frontline staff is making sure there is a good divide where they're still taking care of their home needs and what the clients need. For clients, for children, I remember when I first started in this field, I was very surprised. I went to a training and someone had compared when they go through placements, it's equivalent to adult when they go through a divorce. The emotional stress that comes with it is equivalent to a divorce. And I was very surprised because I had teenagers on my caseload. Um, and even now I have teenagers that have been through 20 plus placements. Um, and every time they change a placement, they have to readjust to rules. They have to redevelop trust and they get to a point where they don't trust and they come in the door and they are trying to just make sure we get to the end that they know is inevitable. So they are pushing foster parents from day one because in their minds, they just know that this is going to be like the last 19 foster parents that I met. For parents that are going through the system, I can see the stress and the concern that despite whatever allegations brought their child into care, especially for those that require out-of-home care, there is still a sense of worry 
about their child's safety. Um, I see parents that come in for various um, reasons and various allegations, and they still have this genuine concern just about if someone is really taking care of and nurturing their children and not having a definite answer to that because they're not with their children throughout the day like their families used to. So they, they deal with that. And a lot of times they come in and because of the stressors they're going through with missing their children, not having their children home, they are putting those frustrations out on foster parents. They don't even know. I see kids come in with a scratch and it's from playing at daycare and a parent will have a complete aggressive interaction stating that that child is being harmed in that foster home. So for our families, for the adults, for the parents that are going through it, I I know emotionally, um, I see it on them, how hard it is for them to come to our office and do visits and leave in an hour or in two hours, twice or three times a week for those kids to go through that separation and for them to feel also that tension from their parents, that worry. Kids are very in tune with adults and with others. So they feel that and it shows in their schoolwork, it shows in their home life. So it can be a very hard process, even more so why I talk about the community being aware of these things. Understanding, you you just don't know that child in your classroom that is lashing out on everyone could be one of these kids that they're just expressing aggression. They don't know where to put it because they don't understand what's going on in their home life. So I, I see that from the adults, from the children, and from the frontline staff even. I've had staff come in my office and ask, you know, for advice on just how to get these things in order because they want to do great things for these families without neglecting their own family. That is a lot right there that you just said on a bunch of different levels. You said the primary goal of the child welfare system was that every child is safe within a family. Right. Where does family preservation fit in in terms of priorities? Family preservation is the priority goal. It's the first goal. Um, actually, the way the state statute is set up when we're talking about permanency um, and dependency, the permanency goals are listed in order of preference um, or priority. And family preservation reunification is the first and primary goal for child welfare. The first goal is to maintain that child in the home and service that family unit. So long as we can safely do that, even if that means bringing in services to increase and control, uh, to increase the safety and control the danger threat. And if it requires in order to control the danger threat, a out of home placement, that we work as quickly and safely as possible and getting that family unit back together and servicing them in the home. So family preservation is our first option. That's the first thing that we explore. Could you give an example of the in-home services, you know, like the child, it's identified the child can remain in the home, but there needs to be services in place to reduce risk and and create a safe environment. Can you just give, I know every case is different, but could you give an example just so listeners get a sense of what that might look like? Right. So services, actually, when we're doing safety planning, in-home or out-of-home safety planning, there's two types of services that we refer to. One is formal and the other one is informal services. Informal services usually is what the family is able to show us that they have. Things such as a church, a friend, a relative, um, a neighbor that could assist. So if we have a supervision issue where a parent is working after daycare hours and the children are home without supervision, 
we explore with that family if we can bring in an informal safety service, whether it be a relative or a neighbor that can assist them with the supervision of those children during the time that that parent's not able to provide that supervision. In that same situation, we would also look into daycare services and if we can provide a referral for daycare funding to assist that parent with daycare. Um, Additional services and formal support would be substance abuse counseling, uh, whether it be in the home, outpatient, in their office. We also do referrals for inpatient substance abuse, and some of our substance abuse programs provide family placements in those residential programs where parents can go with their children and receive that treatment so that family unit can still stay together. Counseling services, children that have any behavior concerns that the parents have expressed, bringing in those support services in the home and wrapping around formal mental health services around that family, whether it be individual or family therapy. Grief counseling, we often refer to based on the needs of that family. And sometimes we go out and it's not just a safety concern because we're no longer servicing just the incident that brought us to the home. If that family shares something with us that we can further assist with to avoid separating that family, we provide support services for that also. So if we go out for physical abuse and we find out that someone close to the family has recently passed away, we will still address parenting and provide a parenting referral to enhance the discipline skill set for that parent, but we'll also give a referral for grief counseling, although that's not what the call was originally for. Right. So very comprehensive and extensive, the range of services. So just to kind of take this in a little different direction for a minute, how did you get into this work? You mentioned, you know, your BSW and then you jump right in as a case manager. How did you even get into pursuing a BSW? I wish I had like a really touchy-feely story, (laughs) (laughs) but I don't. Really, when I went to college, I was going for my degree in physical therapy, and I took one biology course with like 350 people in it. I was 17 when I started college, and I was like, I can't do this eight more times. (laughs) 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 And so I, I... knew that I got into physical therapy because I wanted to work in pediatrics in that area. So I knew that whatever I changed my major to, it still had to be with children. I interned at a hospital when I was in high school in a physical therapy department, and I loved the whole idea of paperwork and charts. So I knew I wanted that too. Wait, you liked liked paperwork? paperwork? Yes. I, I, I was searching for something that would allow me to have paperwork, computer work, where I was going to type and make reports. Like that, That's what I wanted. And I was torn between teaching and social work. Um, it really came down to finding out that I had to take an exam in order to go into the teaching major. And I had already taken the exam I needed in order to go into social work. So I ran with it. And once I got into the major, one of my sorority sisters actually she got a job with DCF and she would tell me about the stuff that she did not like in that job. And I wanted to do those things that she didn't like. I, I wanted to do that. Oh, home visits. Oh, out at night, picking up kids. I, I wanted to do all of that. So it's interesting because she went on to become um, an education administrator. <laughs> and now I'm a child welfare administrator. So I applied for a Title E child welfare stipend. It was out back then where DCF was working to get more social workers in the field. I was accepted for the stipend. I took some child welfare courses at the BSW level. I went on to do my internship for two semesters. Uh, First semester was with DCF, second semester with a private agency. And I was hired right out of college into that private agency, um, into their adoption unit. And 
the rest is <laughs> history, as they would say. <laughs> I think it's a great story because it shows that even though you might have not, you know, someone might not consider this their path in the beginning, they know, you know, you knew you wanted to do something with kids. You knew you wanted to help people, but it's just a matter of finding what that was in the exactly. right fit. Right. And then once you got into it in the classes and, and doing the work with it, you know, you were like, oh, this is for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what also helped is that along the way, I met some really um, great people that were doing great work in this field. Um, even with my story system, when she talked about things that she didn't like, when I was asking her just about what she didn't like, I asked her, you know, why, why'd you stay? And she said, because I know that in this job, in this field, I can help people. I, I'm allowed to have that freedom to really help people. And people like her and people that I met along the way really doing great work and seeing them interact with families and seeing the outcomes, that's what really has kept me in it throughout the years. I want to follow that up with just a question about how your life experiences impacts what you do. Well, when I first started, when, when, I, when I first started, it really was uh, interest due to the neighborhood that I grew up in. Um, it was very odd that in the neighborhood that I grew up in, my household was considered rare. Um, I lived with my mom and dad and my brother um, my entire life. Um, and that wasn't common. And we went until I got in college without ever getting any type of formal assistance. Um, when I got in college, my parents lost their job that they had for 25 years. Wow. And for the first time, we um, had to seek assistance, um, financial assistance. Um, and that experience really stuck with me. During that time, my mom needed some medical attention that if we didn't have that assistance, she would have never got it, even if she was still at her job, because we just couldn't afford for her to take the time off or to pay the deductible for the medical procedure that she needed. And she was able to actually take time and go back into a career that she had always dreamed of. She got educational support. She had school paid for. Um, and she's still doing that career now because of that experience that we had. And that was, oh my goodness, we're looking at like ooh, 18, almost 17 years ago. And she's she still benefited from that experience that we had. Um, during that experience, we did have some hiccups. We met some people that were working in the field that weren't so nice and weren't so helpful or concerned. And that stuck with me too. I knew I didn't want to be that person for other families that needed assistance. So that's when I first started. That's how I started. Now, what impacts me is my children and our family. I have served as a foster parent. I have adopted from the child welfare system. And seeing my children, um, their drive, the challenges that they've been through, what they've achieved, it makes a huge impact on everything I do every day I come to work because I want another child and another family to have the support that we had so that that child can be successful in their family. So, yeah, that's pretty much my biggest right now. Yeah. Pretty powerful. It's really, really is. So how can folks who are listening to this podcast support the work that you do? There's various ways. Um, of course, um, when people hear child welfare, they automatically go with, well, I guess I got to become a foster parent to help. And that's great if you can become a foster parent and you can provide a safe and loving, nurturing home for the children in need and a mentorship and co-parenting for their parents to get them back home. But if they can't do that, sometimes it's just time, time here and there, whether it is painting a house, taking a child out and 
planting a garden, giving a foster parent a break, offering to cook meals when there's an emergency placement, collecting clothes and having a closet for children that come in. Financial contributions, of course, are always appreciated and needed. Um, But there are so many ways, sometimes as simple as just being kind. You don't know what child or what family is going through the child welfare system when you are at a school when you are at a performance um, at your child's school and you see that one child on stage that doesn't have the full uniform, just being kind because you just never know who is involved in the child welfare system. And being kind can go a long way. Yeah, absolutely. So before we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to put out there to the listeners? I I think the biggest thing, and this also goes with just how child welfare work can be supported is being mindful that although there are challenges, there have been some great blessings that came out of child welfare for many families and understanding that and getting that out to others, um, letting them know um, that there shouldn't be a shame or stigma around getting help, whether it be be a child worker, preventive services, foster care stays, being adopted, just understanding that all of this is not negative. So what's in the media is not the majority. That That is not the majority of the outcomes for child welfare and supporting those things that are positive. Um, I recently did an assignment with some of my students um, and they came back and they were very surprised to find out that although there were 20,000 children that had aged out of foster care, there were 65,000 plus that had achieved permanency, whether it be via reunification, adoption or guardianship. So that's a significant number mm-hmm. and a significant difference. And yes, those 20,000 children who aged out of foster care do need extra support and they are important and they need to be serviced. I don't want that to erase those 65,000 positive outcomes that happen in child welfare because aging out of foster care is not necessarily a negative outcome. Most of the time it's just a success that we see later, but there's a lot of positive that comes. Um, and for every tragic story, please don't let it erase the positive ones. Yeah, I think that's a powerful message. And I really appreciate the time of you coming on the podcast. And also just want to thank you for doing the work out in the community. I love it. I wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please follow on Twitter and leave positive reviews on iTunes. If you're interested in being a guest or know someone who's doing great work, please get in touch. And thank you for doing real work to make this world a better place.